oh, I always hesitate on that step. <laughs> the Great Commission. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 28, 16 to 20, which I think is familiar to all of us. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. We begin a mini-sermon series. Not that the sermons will be mini. They're going to be extremely long. I'm kidding, they're not. Uh, Just that the series is three weeks because, and I don't want to upset you with this news, but because after those three weeks, it's Advent, which means that that's getting ready for Christmas time. So the three-week series is on outreach. Uh, introduced very well by the the last song that Jim just led us through. My hope is that we can move as a church to a deeper understanding, but just as importantly to a more consistent practice in terms of our mission. What is it that we are to be doing in terms of outreach? Now, outreach and the words associated with that depending on when you grew up in the church or what kind of church you went to growing up. But words around outreach can carry kind of a daunting feeling to them, even be scary. We've talked before about that word that can be to many people scary, witnessing. And the question, are you witnessing? Of course, the truth is you're always witnessing to something. My early memories of outreach and witnessing in my life are somewhat troubling, coming to Christ as a young teenager And then first, like a number of people, being absolutely enamored with end times. Anybody go through that? Some of you are are still there. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, some people kind of outgrow that phase where they just just can't stop thinking about end times. And some people, I guess, don't outgrow that. But uh, I went through a time in my life where everything, you know, filtered through this concept of end times, the number of the beast and cashless society and all these predictions. And of course, most of the predictions said it's going to happen like any second. And so that with uh, at the Baptist church, the good reminders to be witnessing to your friends, I would use the end times to try to talk to people about Jesus Christ. It didn't always go that well. Sometimes it did. I've told you before that I remember a Catholic friend of mine. I'm still embarrassed about this when I see him still. We don't talk about it, but uh, when I see him every couple of years, if that. Uh, I remember even where. I think it was up near the tennis courts on Westover Road. I used to live on Westover. And I talked to my friend Graham, and I asked him if he went to church. And, of course, the insinuation is that he probably should go to church. And uh, he said yes, which was, if you interpret the answer, yes. It's, the answer, his answer was, leave me alone. Um, or at least let's talk about something else. And uh, I found out that he went to a Catholic church. And so to me at the time, that didn't mean Christian enough. Again, I've matured since then. 
the type of church you go to doesn't have a huge bearing on, on necessarily your concept of Christ or your trust in Jesus Christ. Um, and so I told him, well, you need to know Jesus. And anyway, I remember taking a number of people from my high school to, Rick and I did this together, Rick Calhoun and I, to the Billy Graham crusade. I was a counselor. You know, and you know, they, they do the just as I am, I and it's like a sea of people walking down. A lot of those people are counselors. There are others as well. Many people come to Christ at, at those kinds of events. But uh, the other part of this in, in my own experience is that as I have grown in faith, there's a little bit of an admission here, and it's a confession as much as an admission. There's, I'm not proud of this necessarily. That there can, on many of our parts, I've felt this, there can at times be a reluctance to speak about our faith. And sometimes that's because there can be a cultural embarrassment. You know, you're basically saying to people, I believe in Jesus Christ, but please don't think that I believe this other thing or something. Or that, you know, the people you hear saying the word Jesus the loudest, I don't quite believe like that. Sometimes there's that distinction that you feel. And then I hear people, evangelists in my life, and most of the evangelists in my life are not evangelists about faith. They're evangelists about things like protein shakes. You know what I mean? You have to try this. And they're just driven in it. And I think, how come they're so excited about that? I, I, I was evangelistic this past summer about a bicycle chain that I got. And I told Kim and Keith, you know, oh, this chain changed my bike riding life. Much more evangelical about that sometimes than my faith. But I don't want to condemn myself for that because I'm not selling a product when I'm talking about my faith. I'm not trying to get somebody to try a new protein shake. I'm talking about something much deeper and more meaningful than that. And it should be more meaningful than simply like some kind of marketing thing. So outreach can have the sense of an or else to it. You better believe or else. And I don't want that. I think the Christian church is continuing to reach in maturity towards the kind of outreach that, that is not about believe or else. Our message has to be positive. This is what salvation in Jesus Christ means. It's easier to go negative. You know that. And it's easier to fill places with negative. Because if I started saying, you better believe in Jesus or you're going to burn. Right? Um, it, you, can, you, can, you can get a lot. What, did somebody say something? Oh. Amen, brother. I don't know what you said, but I like you. Um, because if you can scare people, of course, right? If you can scare people, then you can motivate behavior a lot easier for a shorter period of time. So I want to be done to a large degree with the or else, though we need to speak truth. I also want to be done with Christian faith as if it can be marketed, like those products I talk about. So why outreach then? Because we need to recover this. We need to recover this at Sutherland Church. But why outreach? Here's why. Because God is good. Ultimately and entirely good. And he has demonstrated his love for all people in sending Jesus Christ, his son. And as we trust in him, we know the salvation that is in him. Why outreach? Because all of those people in your life who don't believe in Jesus Christ, 
he has done for them what he has done for you. And that you would pray that their eyes would be opened to this love. We want people to know salvation, life, freedom, and fulfillment that are found in knowing the love of Jesus Christ. So over these next three weeks, and during those three weeks, we're going to introduce a new challenge. We've had the prayer challenge ongoing, and it's been wonderful to see people coming out to prayer meetings and praying on a daily basis, um, accepting kind of the five parts of this prayer challenge we had. So as the prayer challenge comes to an end, we're going to issue a very basic outreach challenge. And that's going to, I'm going to call it Advent Invite. And basically, we'd love you to invite some people to church for Advent or an event uh, that the church puts on during the season. Uh, we do need to grow past the idea that outreach, outreach simply means inviting people to church, but it's not a bad place to start. We'll move beyond the attractional model of outreach. And the most famous passage on outreach in our whole scripture is what Norma read for us this morning, right? You all know the Great Commission, which the best way to understand it is is change uh, how it's how it's written. So instead of the way that I've written it there, the Great Commission, take take co and then put a dash and then capitalize the M. The Great Co-Mission, because we are in this together with one another and as Jesus tells us, together with God. So a few simple things I want you to know about the Great Commission as we open this series on outreach. Firstly, I want you to focus somewhat on the word all. As Jesus speaks to his disciples, he first of all says, all authority has been given to me. I don't want to labor this point. We'll talk about it um, to some degree later in the series. Simply to say at this point, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, he is reminding us that he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. And for those who know Jesus Christ, you will nod your heads and say, he is indeed trustworthy. So as he is about to call his disciples to take up a mission, he's saying, you can trust me in who I am and what I'm saying. There's a lot of times that all is used in Scripture. One author that I was reading put it this way in terms of understanding the gospel. He said, the gospel can be summed up to some degree with the statement simply, all are prisoners and all will be shown mercy. People don't always like to hear the word all, and it can be misused. You remember when Jesus walked this earth, he was criticized for how he loved all people. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, how was that said? Like, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Like, positively like that? No. He welcomes even sinners and eats with them. It was not a commendation. It was an accusation. The insinuation being God's love doesn't really reach to all people. He feeds the 5,000 and when we're told that, it says that all ate and were satisfied, Matthew 15. The parable of the great banquet, one of the many that Jesus teaches along these lines. Some people excluded themselves from the great banquet. They excluded themselves. And the response to that exclusion was the instruction to go out and invite all that you find, invite all that you find, both good and bad, to this banquet. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 23 that all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. That's something for this day and age. Most people don't really believe that. It is true. 
And then in the temple, remember when he goes to the temple and he tears down the tables because they've turned it into a place of business? And really what's happening is it's not that he's totally upset about the business. He's upset that people are being prevented from getting to God. And it's a house of commerce instead of a house of worship and prayer. And he says, you remember the words, right? This, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. In John 12, this is, a, this is one to memorize. Jesus, speaking back to the Old, some Old Testament images, but he says, If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And in John 1, he's referred to as the true light who enlightens all, everyone. As I briefly stated a couple of minutes ago, my understanding, how I hold this in my own faith, is that I always remind myself what God has done for me, he has done for everyone else. And what God has done for you, he has done for me. The trouble is that we are self-centered and self-focused and we believe. And at times this can, on, one, on some levels, be helpful to people who are so um, beaten down, oppressed or bullied or... or made fun of, or just... But in our self-centered nature, our self-focused nature, we say things that we think are virtuous, like, well, we make our own truth. There's, there can, as I say, be helpful things in that. But in terms of the spiritual life, it's not ultimately helpful. The negative of this can come up even in our religious understanding. I can say to you, people are self-centered and sinful. And you say, they sure are. Right? And then you get your pronoun problem again, which is a good way to measure some of your spiritual understanding. When you use the pronoun, I say, people are sinful and self-centered. And you say, they sure are. And I say, oh, oh gotcha. Because really, the best way would be to say, I sure am. We sure are is a little bit better than they, but people are self-centered and sinful. I sure am. Life without God is not a big threat to most people anymore. So we hearken back to the days where we think, it used to be more of a threat, life without God, so let's scare the hell out of him again. Because back then, I mean, places were more full. I, I don't... I, we stand on the shoulder of people who've come before us, and, and we're grateful. But our task now is to ask, how are we to reach out today? And life without God is not going to become the threat that it once was. So how do we speak? Because people don't seem many times to give a second thought to God at its worst, and I don't mean to just point an angry finger at our culture because it's never just two-dimensional like that, but there are many circumstances where you could argue that at its worst, our culture just, just promotes this sense of me, 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 and life is measured along those terms. In fact, there can be an encouragement in our own culture to throw off anything that is considered archaic, harmful, some ancient idea of God. Now you go and you create your own truth, right? Which might bring about some positive change. The problem with it is that if you're creating your own truth, and truth being a, like a big ultimate word, right? If you're creating the, your own truth, in the end, what you're left with is yourself. If that's enough for you, okay, You'd be the first person in the history of the world that, who's not a sociopath, who self is enough. H. Richard Niebuhr put it this way, 
What this self-centeredness does is creates a God without wrath, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without a cross. Too much centered on us. So you can't ignore judgment when you come to see the cross. There is judgment in the cross of Christ into this self-centered world. But religious understanding stops often there and says, yeah, judgment, people will get what's coming to them. What we fail to see in this judgment is that Jesus the judge is also our advocate. That's Christian. Jesus the judge is also our advocate. So salvation is not the removal of the threat of judgment, which is what we want to do in our self-centeredness. Salvation is the fulfillment of divine judgment in the love of Jesus Christ. When we focus on ourselves like we're a mini-God, or in religion, now let me kind of speak to the church for how we've become self-centered. We've propagated a Christian faith that makes our personal decisions the most important things. Right? From how we come to faith to how we live faith out. My decision, my choice, me, me, me. Conversion even becomes self-centered. Before salvation is about who decides for Jesus, before that, it is first of all a celebration of those for whom Christ has decided. And that's the message of the gospel, that he has loved all. So outreach, I begin to consider what God has done for me. He has done this for all people. And then I say, Lord Jesus Christ, teach me what it means then to go and make disciples of all nations. I do think that we have to have ways for people to acknowledge their response, their yes, to say, I am a Christian. I have decided. I've given my life to Christ. But the emphasis is not on that self-centered nature of faith. It has to grow past that. So what is the distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian in terms of this word all? If, If Jesus Christ has loved all people and what he's done for me, he's done for everyone... Here's the distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Christian has been awakened to what God has done and seeks to live their life from it. And respectfully to people who say they're not Christians, if I were to say, I have been awakened to what God has done for me and I'm seeking to live my life from it, and the non-Christian would say, and I don't believe that. It's not to disrespect a non-Christian. So, very important in the word all. Secondly, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've shown you. And of course, when Jesus was asked, you know, what does it mean to obey? He talked about uh, what it means to love. You are to be a follower. That's the word disciple, follower, a follower of Jesus Christ. In our world, I think the slogan at that point, rather than the directive, go into all the world and make disciples, the world we live in right now hasn't always been this way, but I think this is current in the West, is go, in, go into all the world and make consumers. And people are judged on how much they can consume. I mean, you actually have thought in your life that somebody is kind of better because they have more. You've done that. I've done that. That they have a better standing because they have a bigger house or more stuff or whatever. This is the infection of the world into our minds. Go out into the world and make consumers. Or a few get to be innovators, but mostly consumers. The, world, the word disciple means for us 
It, it implies a discipline, not so much a punishment, actually not at all a punishment in this understanding, but rather a discipline. I discipline myself in my life, go and make disciples with spiritual discipline, even physical discipline, to follow Jesus Christ. Go and teach others to be disciples. But the fact that we're told to make disciples also shows us something else important. And it's not directly demonstrated in this text, but it's implied for sure. Because we're to go and make disciples, we are reminded in that direction that it is God who initiates, always in faith. God who creates, God breathes, God makes, God redeems. The three transcendentals, you want to talk about a spiritual life, and this is uh, not only in Christian faith, but other faiths have, have picked up similar themes. But in Christian understanding, the three transcendentals, the things that transcend, are goodness, beauty, and truth. And if you want to talk about outreach, you're going to be talking about one of these things, goodness, beauty, truth. Some biblical scholars today say that in our world, beauty has the most hope for evangelism, for outreach. It's tough to say. But these things, goodness, beauty, and truth, they're transcendental, they transcend because they originate with God. All goodness, all beauty, all truth. So the question would come to us as we're directed to make disciples. The first question would be, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or is your primary identity consumer, even in the church? Because our churches now, and you can be a, it can be a really decent church and still do this. We, I think every church would battle with this. Trying to approach people on the level that most other institutions approach people now, which is as consumer. Come to our church because we have a lot of good things for you as a consumer. The question is, whether you go to a church like that or not, the question is, do you want to be a disciple? We have to ask that. Or did you just want to be a consumer? Follow-up questions then would be, do you want to learn to pray? Would you like to learn to pray? Because if we decided to teach one another to pray at Sutherland Church, we could do that. Would you like to learn to pray? Would you like to grow in your faith in Christ in how you view other people? Because we have a crisis in the world right now, and it's in churches as well. A non-Christ-like way of seeing other people. Would you like to be a disciple of Jesus and grow in that? We can help you with that. Would you like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in terms of what matters in your life? That's a tougher one. Because that's when we get, you know, how we're viewed by other people, success or not. And would you like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in terms of where you place your hope? Because I'll tell you right now, if you place your hope in Jesus Christ, you will not be let down. I was on a personal retreat this week. I went away for a couple of days to Cedar Springs. I go at the end of October or beginning of November each year. It's a Christian retreat center just across the border. Time for quiet and solitude. And I loved it. It was fantastic. Two days and 
actually for about an hour and a half it didn't rain, which was nice. Happened to be on a walk at the time. It was more than that, but... And just this most beautiful walk. And God blessed me with an awareness of his presence so much as I walked and prayed. I was overwhelmed. And then at the end, and I've been there so many times that I know, and they've changed it a little bit, but there's a sheet that you fill out. I don't know how many people fill it out. Like, how did we do? You know what I mean? Um, And I'm totally by myself this whole time. Nobody else is there. And so, like, you do your own meals and stuff. They have a little hot plate in the room. And so I don't see or talk to anybody else the whole time except when I'm checking in. And then this little form, how did we do? Was, it, was the place clean? Did the staff that you talked with, were they, you know, did they do a good job and all the, you know, one to five, whatever? And then this question, and this, this is the giveaway that it's a Christian place. I mean, there's lots of giveaways, but this one on the evaluation form, because I've never seen this at, like, some other hotel. When we were in Europe this summer, I never saw this question. It was a question. How did God show up? It would be hilarious if that was at some other hotel. How did God show up? And I've seen that question there before on other times, and I sometimes try to write and run out of space and say something really nice, and you people are all so wonderful. Um, And this time I wrote a little bit more, but I started with, uh, so how did God show up? And I simply put, this is my nature. How did God show up? My writing. Turns out he was already here. He didn't show up, like, after I got there. The question is, how did I become aware of his presence? And I did. And if I don't become aware of his presence, it's not because he didn't show up. At times, I can't manipulate an awareness of God's presence. He's sovereign, but he is present. We are the followers, the disciples. We are not the ones who initiate. And as we make disciples, we long to teach people that. We can help you become aware of God's presence that's already there. We don't bring God to you. That's arrogance. Finally, Jesus' words at the end of this directive goes back and bookends where he says, all authority has been given to me because he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that beautiful, the way he says that? He knows your heart so much. He knows you're already battling with some kind of mental health thing as he tells you you've got to go and make disciples. You're uncertain. You're afraid. You don't know what it means. You're depressed. I don't know, whatever it is. He's given you this task. How could it be you? How could it be this little church that's supposed to go and reach out to people? If you think we feel that, think about what these little, this little ragtag band of disciples felt. You're going to go to all nations and make disciples. And they're looking at each other going, right. And in Jesus' lifetime on this earth, physical time on this earth, he never... There was never a huge movement. There was never a full place, really. And when, when crowds did come, he, he started to work to actually move away from the crowds. So what he's left with is this ragtag group of followers, and he's saying to them, you're going to go and make disciples. And then he finishes with, and I'm with you, even to the end of the age, to the edge of the earth, to the place where you thought I could never, ever be with you. I'm with you right there even in this call to make disciples. All the way, wherever and whenever you think that God could not be with you, even there. 
Salvation is something that God does. The work of conversion is the work of God the Holy Spirit. When you study this type of thing, when you're preparing for a sermon, you come up against people's concepts of judgment, heaven and hell. There's something much bigger than those concepts going on in this directive. But there's some questions that come up. One of them would be, have you ever noticed something curious about people's understanding of hell? Most people who believe that hell is packed and have a list of hell's inhabitants are supremely confident in their own salvation. That's curious. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to people who were a little too sure about their salvation, the words were written from Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be a disciple and make disciples. But the next verse, echoing Jesus saying he'll be with us, so in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be a disciple and make disciples. But verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. God is working, enabling you to follow. Outreach is not something that we do apart from God to bring people to God. Jesus says, I am with you. Outreach is part of the character of God that we seek to know and reflect. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we point people to Christ, to an awareness of his presence and love. Jesus says, I am with you always by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is primary for us, that in some ways the entire work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Jesus Christ, not to put on shows. The work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there might be supernatural manifestation in that, but it is with an end in mind, and that is to lift up Jesus Christ that we would know of the love of God for all people. We need to be reminded of the power of the Holy Spirit because we often live anemic lives of faith. But even then... Even when the Holy Spirit comes in power, the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus Christ. We know that the presence of the Holy Spirit is Jesus saying, I am with you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ present with us. So finally, a note, a point to open up more. We'll open this up more later, but we do this together. Jesus was speaking to this small group of followers. And so the question for us, whatever point we're at, would be as to them. And they might kind of look at each other and think, I guess so. But Sutherland Church, are we ready for a changing of the times? To become more outreach-oriented? I don't want fearful, judgmental, believe-or-else outreach. I don't want it. I don't believe it. I don't want outreach that's about making ourselves feel better, feel so much better if we just filled the place all the time. That's okay, but it's not gospel. Will Williman puts it this way when he talks about God's love for all people and outreach. He says, as a preacher who on a weekly basis moves about the pulpit pronouncing, thus saith the Lord, I, especially I, can tell you that if Jesus Christ doesn't love sinners enough to reach out and save sinners, then I'll be damned. This call to understand Jesus' love for other people as a reflection of the character of God. He has shown this love for you, and you have responded. 
Thanks be to God. Now seek to live in the light of that love, obeying and reaching out to others. We do this together. Some are apostles. They start things. They say, let's do this. Let's try this new program. Some are prophets. They discern. They discern the culture. They discern spiritually. Justice, injustice. Some are evangelists. We have evangelists right here in our church. Some of you are really good at inviting people. I heard, even this week, somebody told me, oh, so-and-so invited me to church. That's a gift. Some are pastors, equipped to guide and direct and cultivate spirituality. Some are teachers, interpreting, informing, and helping us to consider our own formation. But all of this together is for outreach, for the making of disciples. Mission is first an attribute of God. God pouring out his love for us in Christ. So that is why this is the great co-mission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. I am with you, even to the end of the age. So would you consider with me, just ask the Lord, what would it mean that you need to become more outreach-oriented in your faith? Pray, ask God for those times to share faith, and we'll work together on it. Thanks be to God. Let me pray, and I'm going to pray also for the offering and the communion that will be, take, that will be uh, passed out before the offering.